The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined by Stephanie. Stephanie is a firefighter paramedic from my region in Virginia. She has nearly 20 years of service on the job. I first heard from her when she reached out on Instagram to tell me she was using my episodes as a teaching tool. A little later on, she reached out again, this time to invite me to be a guest on her own podcast, the Five After Midnight podcast. You can find under the heading of Fire Engineering. We sat down and recorded an episode for her show, and as we were finishing, she says, you know, I have a pretty interesting story to tell. That's all I needed to hear and immediately asked her to be a guest on my show. Her episode speaks volumes about the treatment of females in a fire service and in the world in general. Stephanie's story is at times raw and heartbreaking, yet there are moments that are uplifting and help restore some faith in the meaning of crew and humanity. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Oh, the story she dropped a hint here and there but she knows what she knows what to do behind a mic and so i'm not really I, I, worried I wouldn't, wouldn't you know what i'm saying it, so i'm not really worried about you telling the story i just i'm gonna be, i'm an audience member so i, I have no in, inkling of what's going on until we so start talking see how traumatized i can make you all right all right where do you want to start you want to tell me about start at the beginning all right so where, to start. where did you grow up born and raised actually right around this area born at prince william hospital back before they even had a freaking birthing wing. So, okay. So, so, so old name. Grew up in Northern Virginia and around Northern Virginia. Had two parents that didn't get divorced. All that wonderful, normal stuff. Had bonus parents of my grandparents living right down the street, which is really actually extra cool. My grandfather helped discover electromagnetic magnetic interference and all that nerd stuff. So, he set up out in Faulkner County, he set up this whole little government training center and it made it a pretty cool childhood because we lived right nearby and all these scientists from all over the world were coming and training under him and all that. At a very young age, got exposed to a very diverse atmosphere and a high level of achievement, which I think was very key for how my childhood went. Didn't really, didn't really get to goof off too much because there was always a, a high standard set <laughs> because of that kind of stuff. Goals always had to be written out, that kind of stuff. So really great, stable childhood. Um, the only really weird thing is parents went to a very religious church. And I say religious because there's a difference between, in my mm. personal opinion, faith and, and religion. I'm not a fan of religion no. whatsoever. Uh, so they went to this church with all their college and, and some high school friends, actually. They all moved. You know that movie, The Village? <laughs> no. That M. Night Shyamalan movie? Oh, yeah, yes. I yeah. do. Now I know what you're talking Kinda about. I like that. <laughs> They all moved to this one area and all started going to the same church together. And this place got weird fast. They made you, they made women cover their heads, oh, cover their ankles okay. and all that. 
So got exposed to that kind of... Not the evil ankle. So got exposed to a very young age at seeing how fast people can buy into something. Like mm-hmm. one day it was a normal church, the next day you were learning how to knead bread or something at home. I don't know. It got weird fast. You know, my parents did that thing for a couple of years. It was pretty weird. Finally, they left there, thank God, after people started saying, hey, we could see your child's... Because my, my mom didn't do that. My mom didn't fucking cover her head or ankles or anything. She wore a power suit to church. And one day the pastor said, hey, we could see your daughter's knees. <laughs> so they left that. That was luckily the most traumatizing part of my childhood. So really, really good, strong foundation going into life, thankfully, if that was the most traumatic thing that occurred to me, we're doing good. Well, let's be honest. And and I don't want to, I don't want to alienate people, but religion can be traumatized. You know what? I will say this. Do I believe in God? Yes. Will I ever step foot in a church again? No. Yeah. And there's your difference between religion and spirituality. Correct. So, and, and that'll be a topic for a whole different <laughs> show, but yeah, I agree with you. Episode three of this shit show. There you go. Uh, but yeah, startup was able to work because my dad and my grandfather had their own company starting in age 12, was able to get that permit to work. So always had my own money bank. So around age 14, I told my parents, I want to start traveling every summer, doing different humanitarian trips. So did that 14, 15, 16, 16, didn't do it with an organization, just traveled on my own and went to Eastern Europe back when Romania was trying to join the EU. So for those too young to know this. Europe, um, Romania was a shit show back then because they had, there's an Eastern Bloc country. Ceausescu had just stopped being ruler. Their orphanages were an absolute disaster. Kids were handcuffed to cribs kind of thing. So that was the first time in my life. I had done refugee camps. I had done Haitian refugee camps, South American orphanages. This was the first time I had ever seen true human depravity and a dire need for medical care. So came home from that and thought, well, I, I want to do something in the medical. And uh, came home, was doing pizza with my friend and her boyfriend's with us. And he said, I'm an EMT. And I said, what the fuck is an EMT? So literally that night, marched me down to the local firehouse and got me a, a little volunteer application. And I think I got voted in a week later. What year was this? Oh, 2002 or three. Okay. Got voted in that very first night there. I guess career staff is watching everybody go in. Career staff goes out, takes me, drags me into an office and says, who are you? What are you doing here? And what's your... I think they could tell that my vibe was a little bit different than than the normal teenager that came through. And, and I think they wanted to set me on the right path early. So these guys were great. They were amazing. They put me right into EMT school, right into medic school, right into anything. They guided me right away towards... The career path. And the goal was always get a paramedic, get something like that, go back overseas. You know, I never had any plans to join the fire department, love torturing anyone who thought fire was cool, anything like that. I just thought those guys were total jerk offs. Never, yeah. ever wanted this. Not far <laughs> off, but not, not yeah. depending on the human. Right. So that was always the goal. That was always the, the plan. So start EMT school, having to do ride time, being a firehouse and all that. And any story that's fire department related that I'll tell during this little session. The people involved are retired. I'm not doing this thing where anyone hears this and decides to do the right thing. No, we're, we're, we're telling, <laughs> we're telling old and dead stories here. Wasn't really ready, I think, for the environment that comes along with the firehouse. Which environment are we talking about? Because there's a, a few quote unquote environments. 
So back in the early 2000s, there were not a lot of career females mm -hmm. whatsoever. You'd find one in a battalion kind of thing. So females being in a firehouse was treated still as a game. Mm -hmm. Most girls came through and went. Most female volunteers, some were absolutely there for the right reasons. Some weren't. And I think people were just used to treating females a certain way. Where I was volunteering, there was a... There was a career guy who would start paging me all the time. Back then we had pagers. If you were born in the 90s, go look it up. But would start paging me all the time. So then he'd call the firehouse wondering what the emergency was. It was nothing. Just wanted to talk, which I, I thought was weird, but whatever. Got a hold of my email address. Started emailing all the mm -hmm. time. Got a hold of my phone. Started calling all the time. And I learned not to pick up. You couldn't block people back then. It was just the brick cell phones. So figured it. All right. Don't pick up. This will go away. I started leaving just long, rambling messages, whatever. So about six months of this happens. And then this individual decided she's not returning anything. So we're going to start being mean about it. So we started going down that path of in the back of the engine, go on a calls, reach over, grab my knee, dig in or grab my wrist and try to make it pop, stuff like that. And let me know one day I'm just going to do stuff like that until I get you to cry or scream, whatever. Bring it on. I have four brothers. Didn't really care. But got to the point eventually where one night accidentally bumped into this individual and literally just turned around to walk away. It was, it was a true accident and just got punched in the spine. And I went down. And that was the first time off of a playground another adult had ever shown aggression like that. And I remember thinking, what the fuck did I do wrong? You know, because I'm the kid in this situation. There's an adult doing this. That was, was my first introduction, I think to adult aggression and what could happen out there. So I remember walking out of that situation thinking, well, this has to be me because I don't see any, anyone else going through this. At the time, I was dating a cop. So I remember I left the firehouse, went and found him, and he said the exact same thing. So well, what did you do wrong? You must have. <laughs> that, that assumption right there is so powerful. Go through medic school. Luckily, get pulled out of that firehouse to go right on uh, career medic units and had the absolute opposite experience. Uh, two amazing preceptors who looked at me and said, we, we have a teenage kid on our hands and we are going to do everything to conspiracy theory prep this kid for the career she's about to walk into. And they were amazing. They were great. They toughened me up. I don't mean in a way that I needed to be toughened up, but just, hey kid, this is the truth. This is the reality of the career you're going into and the things you're going to see and the way you're going to be treated. And, and they were absolutely phenomenal at, uh, at setting me up for success. That's what I was going to ask. And is were they setting you up for the realizations of what it's like to be a female in a firehouse? Is that what you meant? They were, no. listen, don't trust anyone until they've proven themselves to you. And just Probably not trust them at that point. <laughs> yeah. And don't accept anything less than professional. So they were fantastic. They realized what they had on their hands, thank God. So at this point, go and get myself hired. Turned 20 right before recruit school. And the cop I had been dating at this point in life, there's a little bit of an age difference. This point in life, parents who still at the time, I would no longer call them religious, but still at the time aren't very religious or they're in their mind at the time, it was, hey, people, people can go get jobs, but the end goal is marriage kind of thing. That was more the game plan they had. So went ahead, moved in with this guy, started to make tracks towards that whole game plan in life, even though I didn't really want to, wasn't a fan of the idea. Start recruit school which was hysterical. Just a great fun time getting to 
learn without any responsibility per se. I, I don't think any of us take, I think all of us take recruit school too easily. It's going to be the most fun of your career if, when you look back on it. <laughs> yeah. You, you hear that a few times and yeah. it depends. Yeah. I, there it, were moments hard. that were very fun. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's very hard. It's very challenging. But at the end, you look back at it and you go, I had no true responsibility other than to not be yeah. an idiot. Yeah. Other than not fuck up and yeah. just to learn. It's that was your responsibility. It's the safest part of of the whole fire service experience. So go through that. Graduate. And uh, I remember graduation night, I turned to the guy I was dating. And I said, hey, keep in mind, I'm not even 21 yet. I just turned 20. I said, hey, a couple of us are going to go out, grab a drink. I'll be home in a couple hours. I'm obviously not going to drink. I'm not about to blow the career I just got. And I remember him being a little angry about that, but whatever. So go out, do dinner with the rest of my recruit school, and then go back. And I remember, so this is day one of my career. I think I had one day off before I started on B-Shift. Don't hold B-Shift against me. It was only for 13 years. Can't hold it because I am on B-Shift. Anyway, moving on. I remember the next morning, just this individual just would not talk to me. And I remember thinking, what the hell, man? You know, I was in recruit school. You went on a million little trips without me. And I just went and uh, hung out with the rest of my recruit school and, and celebrated our achievement. So that should have been the first red flag of, hey, you left me alone kind of thing, whatever. So go and start shift. Being a mouthy female with prior experience walking into a firehouse made for a hysterical probie year. Let's just put it that way. It was not traumatizing. Won't say anything like that, but just a uh, difficult probie year because I walked into it difficult. I can't imagine what those poor guys went through. And, and they were all young and not prepared to have a, a mouthy, outspoken female coming into their firehouse. So probie year was a little challenging. And during that time, home life got pretty weird pretty quick. I would come home and tell stories about the guys I'm working with, and, and suddenly it became a, you're sleeping with them. And then it became a, you probably slept with your instructors to get through recruit school. And it got to the point where every day coming home just was a barrage of you're, you have to be a whore to be a female firefighter, just all this stuff. Now, I hear this all the fucking time. We run these calls. It's a female's fault for staying. And something that I think people always miss in these stories, uh, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm telling these this story, not my favorite story. In fact, only two people in the world have ever heard it, so congratulations to you. Be a few more soon, <laughs> so I apologize, but I don't. No, that's It's, you know what, it's... uh and. As I get older, I discover one day, my game plan since I was a small child has always been to be a, a hermit. The book Heidi's Grandfather, that's always been my game plan. So I realize as I approach hermitage, stories are learning yes. experiences for people. And that's why I'm telling this one. But to get back to that path, when people talk about what's well, a female's fault for staying in that situation, it's like the biology frog in hot water thing. You meet a human being, they're nice, they're kind, they win over your family, they win over you. And then that water slowly gets turned up. And then you're really taught, this is your fault. I am, I've never been this human being with anyone before. I'm only this human being right now with you because you broke me and it's your job to stay and fix me. So that's something that people need to understand when they run these calls is that is why a person is there. They're there because they're told that this is their fault and they want to fix it because, you know, who, who doesn't want to fix something they broke? Especially as firemen. That's in all of us. We're fixers. Yes, it is. We are fixers. That situation, it went from that 
to learning how to uh, dip, dive, duck, dodge. Ended up being lots of holes around my home, which meant stopped having friends over. Stopped going out with friends. I was never a big go-outer, but just lunch with female friends, whatever, because I didn't want to have to answer the question of how's life. So just a real self-isolation began to happen. Was it just self-isolation or was it coming from him as well? It was both ends. Okay. Isolation by necessity from that end and and a self-isolation of, of true just true embarrassment. So at this point, luckily for me, some of the guys on another shift just started to notice things when they'd answer the phone at the firehouse because back then cell phones weren't reliable. <laughs> So, uh, reception was horrible. So someone who wanted to habitually know where you were and get a hold of you couldn't by cell phone. So you'd call the firehouse and guys on other shifts were starting to notice things, thank God, and starting to make little comments here and there, which I think I was a little too young to pick up on, but I was definitely being watched in a good way. And guys, some of the lead instructors in recruit school had, had picked up on a thing or two from family night when he came by and... And I wasn't alone as I thought it was. Eventually get to the point where I realized this is not, this is affecting my career. Calling and screaming at me when I'm at the firehouse, stuff like that. I've always wanted, I've wanted this career for longer than I've known this person. So this person has to go. So did that and family did not handle it. Just parents were very upset because nobody knew what was going on. Friends were upset. When everybody's eyes, this is a great human being. You're, you're you're the bitch. You're the problem. You're being immature. Oh, is it because you're surrounded by guys now? Just all that backlash. So I ended up my probe year, navigating probe year, and just really dealing with adult issues that 20-year-old shouldn't be dealing with. So that was an interesting way to to start the fire service. And after I left, the suicide threats started, which I would. I remember one night, he called and I was out with a friend and just said, hey, have a gun to my head. I'm counting down and then I'm pulling the trigger. And so he started to count down and I'm crying and saying, don't do this. And when he got to one, just the phone went silent. And I just remember screaming into space and couldn't get a hold of him for like half hour, head home. And, and he, he answers the phone and has some pretty ugly things to say. And then I remember about two days later, ran a suicide go into a psychiatrist's office of all things and his wife's practice was next door and wa- and she had called 911 so I, I walk in first person there and I'm looking around don't see anything and then I see a large trash bag like the the yard leaf size ones and I, I walk over and and I look trash bag like the the yard leaf size ones and I, I walk over and and I look and he's in there gunshot wound to that. And then the suicide note is next to it. So have a glance at that. And then I realize I hear this noise that his, and we, we were all on the scene at that point, engine medic and cops, and we hear noise and we look over and, and the wife this entire time had been hiding under this little coffee table, just crying. And I think that call really stuck into my head because of that. But because of everything going on in my home life, woke up at 2 a.m. that night in my bunk and this individual is just standing there, gunshot wound to the head. And that was the first and only time, thank God, that I've ever seen something like that after a call where I've, I don't know if it's hallucination, dream, whatever, but where you've, you've seen the victim of a call. But at that point in time, I realized what whatever is going on at home 
has an effect on my career. And I never put those two together. I had always just thought I'm strong enough to do this one thing. So I'm strong enough to handle the other thing and I can keep them separate and can keep them compartmentalized. And that was, and I was very lucky to discover that, that young because of that call. That was when I realized home comes along with you because you're always taught per year, Hey kid, keep that shit at home. When you're at the firehouse, you're at the firehouse. You don't think about what goes on at home. And the, the true realization of, no, that's truly physically impossible, mentally impossible. You can't do that. Really hit hard that day. So shenanigans keep happening because I'm not telling anybody shenanigans are, are happening with that individual and just finally got to a point. And like I said, I had moved out and I had moved out because someone from another shift actually the night all the crazy phone calls happened, I, I called the firehouse saying, hey, I'm, I'm out sick tomorrow and a little bit ended up slipping out. That individual said, you're leaving and you're leaving tonight. And I did, thank God. So once again, someone in the fire department observing was brave enough to step up and say something. And that really had a, a very positive effect on me being alive. So moved out. And one one night this individual called and said, hey, I need you to come back to the house. We have to talk about something. And I did. And I went. And not going to get into that night because I don't know what kind of reaction I'll have talking about it. But it was made very clear I was not leaving that house alive that night. And I remember just at the end of the night, just being in a corner by myself, just not knowing what what life looked like moving forwards. And this individual left the room to go use the restroom and I just ran the fuck out of there. And the reason I'm telling this story is it is necessary to make the, a point. I remember just running from my life and thinking, I'm going to hear a gunshot at any moment. And luckily my car was parked nearby and didn't, made it. And this is the important part. Called my dad. And I remember calling my dad sobbing and telling my dad everything. And then I remember a week later doing the same to my mom. And, and life just went on. My parents never said anything to me about it, which I thought was weird. And then I found out that they were still having this individual over for dinner, which I thought was horrible. So I ended up not talking to my parents for four years because of it. And the reason I tell that story is this. Come to find out years later, after running a call, I had flashbacks. And during those flashbacks, I could clearly see myself on the phone with my dad saying absolutely nothing. And I could see myself talking to my mom saying absolutely nothing. So I went to my parents and I said, hey, do you remember these things? This phone call, this conversation? They said, yeah, it was my mom said, yeah, you were just standing in front of me crying. My dad said, yeah, you called me and you were just silently on the phone and you said nothing. And that was a slap in the face, a wake up slap, because we as first responders, when we think of PTSD, we always think of people in wars, people who have survived murders. It's, we don't think of anything in normal, nothing about that story is normal, but in more routine family life as having the ability to give us any kind of, of PTS. And especially as firefighters, we're strong enough to handle anything. We see these things on calls for fuck's sake. So if, if I see this on a call when it happens to me... I should be able to suck it up and mentally move on past it. I'm here to say, no, <laughs> 
your body will find ways to protect your and that was very eye-opening i didn't come to that realization till my mid-30s that that your brain will do whatever it takes to survive even if it means completely closing the doors to reality and making you think hey no i've I've made myself safe by telling these people these things and I'm safe now. It will do whatever it takes to survive. So that was that was shocking to find out after having missed out on actually I think it was 6 years of of life with my parents. So all that happened in my early 20s. Go on after probate year, get assigned to a firehouse that was a lot quieter. On day 2 of being there, the captain pulls me aside and says, "Hey, I just I don't like you." never going to like you. You and I are always going to be oil and water and we're never going to get along. And he proceeded to make my station life (laughs) reflect that statement. So just went about my day and no matter what I did, there was paperwork. I cleared the plate of the guy in front of me and the plate of the guy next to me. I got paperwork for not clearing for the whole table. And I'm not the probie there too. Just absolute ridiculousness that wouldn't happen in this day and age. We have the safety safeguards in place for that not to happen anymore. But just. I I don't mean to interrupt, but actually I do mean to interrupt because I'm worried that those safeguards aren't necessarily as in place as they should be nowadays. Oh, they're still not. So I just want want to make sure that we we touch on that a little bit because I don't think they are. And definitely in a lot of smaller departments Mm -hmm. and not centered around metropolis departments. They absolutely are not. And I do see that working a lot with with women and women's health. I'm still amazed by some of the stuff I see. But at least where I am now, um, a lot more safeguards are in place. And the reason I tell this story is because having just come out of that situation where I had to figure out what was my fault and what was not in life. This was dumped in my lap. And this absolutely was setting me up to break me in every way, shape, and form possible if it were not for the most amazing shift of guys I had before I came along at this house. And it was a specialty house. So all the guys who were there wanted to be there. They worked hard to get there. This was considered the pinnacle hazmat house. And you were... You were really good if you were there kind of thing. And I watched one by one these guys go up to the captain over the course of six months and say, stop it. And you're wrong. And I watched one by one as these guys were transferred out over a four day, sent to IA for random bullshit, just punished one by one. And I'm very sorry for what happened to the careers of those guys, but it took me and systematically built me back up as a human being to watch other individuals see something wrong and put their careers on the line was just the greatest gift I could have asked for at at that place in time. That all came to a head when one day the captain made me, he put a piece of paper in front of me and said, hey, someone told this joke. You were in the room, write down all the names of everyone involved. And I said, this joke was six months ago. I'm not telling you anything because I'm not going to remember accurate descriptions of a joke six months ago. So he, I wasn't truck qualified, took me off the engine, put me on the truck, took the truck out of service, which back then was a huge no-no because there weren't many trucks in the area. Put the truck out of the service, pointed to a street sign outside, said that thing's crooked. Go dig it up, go dig a new hole and cement the new one in place and shore it up. So sure enough, went outside and go outside and, and 
the individual who was in charge of making sure I did it, I said, hey, can you go grab me a bag of cement? I don't know. I don't even know where we would have that in a firehouse. And he said, no, we've been ordered. No one is allowed to help you. So here's the situation where I'm standing in the middle of the road, by the way, to do this. Truck lieutenant, poor guy, was overtime or detailed in, has no fucking clue what's going on. I think he thought I must have murdered someone. He closed down part of the road for me. And all the guys are just standing around like, what the fuck do we do now? And most is a day, the day this happened, almost all of our guys were off. So it was planned. That, so there I am digging a hole in the middle of the road or in the middle of something. Digging a new hole, put a, put a sign in place, cemented it into the ground, shore it up and all that. Luckily, one of the other guys on a different shift said, what in the actual fuck? And he went and he made some phone calls and I was out of there, I think, two nights later. So once again, someone stepping in and saying, I don't care about my career as much as I do <laughs> the right thing. So I was gone within two days. Went to a much different, much busier firehouse across the county. And uh, my first day there, I remember being under the engine with my new master tech going over morning check stuff. And I get called into the office and I've got grease all over my face. And this motherfucking captain is sitting there with my new battalion chief and my captain. And he proceeds to trash me in the most hysterical way ever. Just nonsensical stuff. She could have been outside doing drills in the middle of winter by herself. She could have pulled hose lines by herself. And keep in mind, I've already done all my probie stuff. And, and this this was the captain from the previous, firehouse yeah. had come to your to, new firehouse. To my new firehouse. To my, try and my shit captain. talk you to the captain and the yeah. chief. And, correct? Uh, correct. Okay. And my cap, my new captain will say, well, what, what was she doing? She was studying instead. So it just, it was ridiculous, hysterical stuff. And in front of me, my brand new chief looked at him and said, if you ever come by this firehouse again, <laughs> I will physically throw you out. And that was really the start of my fire department career for me because it was the first time in my life I had, thankfully, everything had evened out at, at home. Still wasn't speaking to my family because I, I hadn't realized things yet. Uh, but I had a shift of guys who looked at me and saw a complete underdog with potential. And they were not easy on me. Everything was earned, nothing was given, but they were amazingly fair. And they restarted my career, essentially. It was just a nice little control alt delete of everything that happened in the past at that at that last station. They took and rebuilt my faith in humanity and my career. So career really started afresh and I got to learn things in a much healthier environment and finally being able to and because it was back to being busy first assignment was crazy busy and just was busy focusing on survival at home and didn't get to focus on how I handled calls so this was the first time in my career where I got to focus on calls and how I handled them and we ran a lot of traumatic stuff and it was great our captain amazing dude would tell us listen if you need to talk to someone then this isn't the career for you Great guy, but very old school. And it, you shouldn't need therapy. You mm. should be able to see something and absorb it. So that's played into how I felt about my early adulthood experiences. I should be able to handle it, absorb it. We're firemen. We're tough. We can do everything. Um, so I remember we ran this one call. And it was a three-year-old who her grandmother at Tyson's Corner Center had thrown her off one of the, the pedestrian bridges 50 feet down. So we get there. We, we think she's dead. 
which is horrible to say that would have been easiest, but we roll her over and she starts screaming. She's still alive. That call, getting her to the hospital, she died shortly after. I remember we all went back to the firehouse and we all sat in the same room, the day room, and we each grabbed a pie. We each sat there just with a pie in freaking silence. And I just remember years later looking back on that as it was a traumatic call, but just being in the room with people with the same shared experience, I think for me was just as powerful as therapy because I knew if I had opened my mouth and said anything, it would have been okay mm-hmm. and it would have been safe. So that was a, a learning experience of sometimes just being around like-minded people in a, I hate to fucking use this term, but a safe space. And by safe space, the correct usage for the term safe space is you are safe to express what you're thinking around people who are thinking the same as you. Not sure if that's how uh, the newer kids are using that, but that's what I mean when I say something like that, that you're not going to get jumped on. So 2010 comes along. 2007 was when I had left that crazy house. 2010 comes along. Meet a guy, really great guy, about a year later into dating. So career has really been going great. Fucking fantastic house, fantastic guys, learned a lot. A year later, we ended up having our first wonderful child. My entire life, I had been told, I think starting at about age 15, every, so I have a lot of autoimmune diseases. Wasn't expected to live past 16. And every doctor from about 15 forward had said, hey, you need to know now, you're never going to have kids, never going to have kids. Had a child, was not prepared for that in any way, shape or form. So that was a big shock, big learning curve. Life life is great and reconnect with my parents because they reached out when they found out I was pregnant. I don't know what it was about having a child, but all of a sudden when you have a kid and you notice you have kids, you obtain a different level of vulnerability and fear. All of a sudden you go from invincible to, <laughs> and I don't know why, just a certain level of insecure isn't the right word, vulnerable isn't the right word, but just mortal. You're mortal all of a sudden. It's that realization that you're not always going to be there. Right? So I suddenly discover this phenomenon driving home. And to this day, I can't really pin what would trigger it, what would cause it, what. But driving home, I suddenly would just start to have these panic attacks related to what I went through in my early 20s. And I would feel unsafe completely unsafe. And I would start crying and shaking. And it would always be when driving home. And I think it's because he did on at least one occasion try to end my life in a vehicle. And I, I'm guessing maybe it was lack of sleep, whatever. Don't know what brought it on. Don't know why. So this started happening like once a freaking tour going home, just having these sheer, I'm not safe. My child's not safe. Panic attacks. Because this individual knew I had a child. He sent me a text message and he said, hey, you can reach, reach out and touch that kid anytime I want kind of thing. So I think that's what triggered it. So at that point in my life, fast forward a little bit, had baby number two. And this is still going on. Career is going great. This weird thing is going on that put me in a different, didn't ruin my life, didn't rule my life. But just this realization of hey, maybe there's an open door there that I'm not aware of. I thought I had put all this stuff in a box, put it on a shelf. Once my family was the missing link, I thought I was good once they came back into my life. How am I going to get rid of this? So just by chance, because I wanted my kids to know how to defend them, as a family started 
martial arts, started jujitsu. And I think the first time I truly kicked a guy's ass and it was him truly fighting me, not, not trying to be nice to the girl, but I'm about to be embarrassed by a girl. It stopped and it never came back. Found a strength and just the realization, because for years I had these nightmares that this individual was going to show up at my firehouse or at my academy, knock me out cold, and then just everyone would know this whole hidden, because nobody knew what was going on. No, of course nobody one, knew. One or two, two people had picked up that there were things, but nobody knew what was going on in the beginning of my career whatsoever. And just discovering that I had more power to control my destiny than physically than I realized was just game-changing. So once again, I think, okay, everything's okay. We're good. That was truly the final door on this story. It's closed. We're good. So go forward. Life is great. Life is great. Realize my significant another, my husband and I realize we have different goals, priorities, paths in life, and, and we divorce. At the time, my babies were four and one, two little boys. And suddenly, my four-year-old out of nowhere... And keep in mind, up to this point in life, I, I had always thought I was pretty invincible. Managed to to beat a bunch of random illnesses, managed to survive a domestic situation in my early 20s, crazy career, all this. I'm thinking I'm good. All of a sudden, my four-year-old, when I would go to pick him up from my ex and I switched shifts. So that way there would always be someone off of the kids. Go to pick him up. He would just start screaming. I hate you. I want you to die. You know, I'd have to carry him kicking and screaming to the car, get him in, in the car. He would get out of his, his little car seat and he would he would get down into the, the bottom part of the car and just be huddled against the door and just screaming or he'd try to climb out the, the car window, get free while the car was moving. And it got to the point where it was physically unsafe to pick him up and take him with me. And the baby did the opposite. He's one and he just wouldn't... When I would bring him back at night to go to work the next day, you would have to physically take him away from me and just screaming bloody murder. And that was the first time in my life that I think I ever physically and mentally just broke. I got to the point where I didn't see my four-year-old for four months. It, it was crazy. And then just watching my baby just be the opposite and we'd be out walking together, me and him, and playing, and he'd just talk about missing his his brother. Excuse me. And that was the first thing that I can ever say really broke me. And it got to the point where I would go to work and I'd go to bed. Just I was not able to function. And that was insane to me to just actually realize that that, that something could knock me over. And I was knocked the fuck over. So this went on truly for about a year, really long year. I mean, it got to the point where my mom's best friend, who had always been in my life from middle school on. So I actually, I call. She was coming over and literally getting into bed with me on days when I didn't have my kids and just <laughs> watching chick flicks all day. And it, it just was a point, I got to a point of not being able to function, which was ridiculous. Sorry. No. You're f My best friend, who also does martial arts, she and I would travel a lot to, to do, she would compete a lot. And I remember we went to dinner one night with a bunch of different 
coaches. And when I say coaches and people who have world athletes, we were at, we're at worlds actually. So some of the coaches who had the top athletes, we ended up at dinner. And I remember as we were leaving, one of the coaches looked at me and said, you can do anything you want in life. And I, I don't remember the context of the conversation. And I looked at him, kind of did the cocker spaniel head cock. And he said, no, I can just tell that about you. You can do whatever you want in life. And it's the dumbest thing because it's just simple cliche coaching, whatever. And the guy was just saying it because it was part of the conversation. But I just needed to hear that at that moment in my life. Went home and just called a therapist and said, hey, here is my game plan with my child. What do you think? And the funny thing about therapists, as we all know, is they listen. They don't tell you what to do. They listen to what you have to do. So I came up with a game plan and went through it with my kid and started to find out and not knocking his father in any way, shape or form. But his dad had started to see someone and she had kids. And so in his little baby mind, if he came home with me, he was going to lose his dad. So that's where we were. So finding that out, just moving forward was night and day. And to, that was back in 2018. And now, um, just night and day difference. I mean, it, it took a solid year of just bouncing things off a therapist. But we are, we are in an amazing place now. But that situation <laughs> taught me about therapy. And uh, I will try to find the right way to phrase this. We all need therapy and we all need therapy at different times in our lives. But I will absolutely say, if you do not know what to do in life, call a freaking therapist. Because this therapist didn't tell me anything I didn't know. Hmm. She just sat there and she listened to me verbally talk through a problem of what could be causing this child's behavior. And then from there I went and was looking up and I thought, oh, maybe this is going on. And, and during a little bit of digging found out, yeah, that's what's going on. And okay, from there I can start to heal this child's problem. So life gets good again, <laughs> get transferred to, because I wanted to be on a different shift than my ex in 2018 at the same time that I'm figuring things out, get transferred to the house I'm at now. Absolutely amazing, hysterical individuals. And once again, think everything in life is okay. <laughs> and life happens. One day, I was uh, 2020. Yeah, 2020. In September, driving down to Roanoke for a union event. I was a delegate for the state convention. Driving down there, I get a text from my dad. And he says, hey, I'm really sorry about one was one of my two best friends from birth. And I called him and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm really sorry. I thought I thought her mom had already called you. She passed. And it turns out you're older than me. Three kids. She had they found her passed out or deceased in a parking lot. Turns out she had a congenital heart defect that nobody knew about mm. since we were kids and just passed away. And my amazing significant other just dealt with me that night having the breakdown of a lifetime. And I remember the next morning, 
woke up because we had to go do union stuff, woke up, just took the longest, hottest shower I could, dunked my face in ice and covered my face in like a deep puffing caffeinated eye cream, <laughs> stung the fuck out of my skin. And I went down there and I acted like nothing had happened in yeah, life. Literally put in a face on. Put the face on, acted like nothing had happened in life and went about my life. And this has happened. I've lost a couple people very close to me. One of the one of the guys who really stuck up for me at that <laughs> that house with the crazy captain, he passed away from cancer unexpectedly. And I never went to his funeral, never went to his gravesite. And it really hit me with this death that what we do as firefighters, because it's necessary, we need to, we have to have this life skill, is we ignore it, we work through it, we move past it. We put it in whatever little box we need to put it in to run the call. But then we never go back to that little box. Very rarely. We never peek under the lid and say, has this been all folded and neatly taken care of? Because we think, so getting out of that weekend, okay, you know what? Spend a night crying, whatever, I'm good, I'm fine. Well, the next thing comes along, which was, God damn it. So my mom's best friend, who I've who I call mom, she passed away from COVID, but that one was rough to watch because that was 30 days of her being, when they finally woke her back, unintubated her, and she was just on CPAP. She was just hypoxic as fuck and, and paranoid texting and all that. And so that was truly watching someone die for 30 days, and that was rough. And then once again, my mom, same thing. So get through that situation, very traumatic for everybody, and take on firefighter role with the family of being the strong one. And I remember my mom asked me, my biological mom, she said, hey, have you cried yet? And it took me like a year to cry. And that was when I realized <laughs> you are never going to handle things in a healthy way because of your career unless you stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> And make some changes. So here I am, about to be in my 40s, discovering 20, 20 years, 19 years into a career, what healthy handling of things looks like. And I just, we talk about therapy, we talk about mental health, we talk about peer support, we talk about all these things. But really what it comes down to is... To back up a little bit, the IFF teaches a class, and it's it's a it's something outside of their behavioral health as well. It's a suicide safety plan, and what it teaches you is if you're having those suicidal thoughts, find something that you like to do to distract yourself, play the guitar, or whatever, and then if that doesn't work, call someone on your safety plan. You don't have to tell them what's going on, but you call someone, and then the next step. I think was leaving the house. And I believe the next one is you call someone and you tell them what's going on. We all need that in our lives, period. Regardless, we need a safety plan for how we are going to handle the bad calls and our home life. Because what this long rambling story has, has proven, hopefully, is that the two bleed into each other. You cannot leave family life at home. You cannot leave what is going on 20 of the days that you're not working at home. 
and then expect those 10 days or more, mando days, that you work to be okay if you're not handling things properly back home. And then those 10 or however many days you are working, if you're just putting something in a box there to be able to function when you're getting at home, you're just creating this whole vicious cycle. So what I have really been working on, I think, over the past two years has been what are my actual what are my actual limits? If going home and working out doesn't cut it, where do I go from there? And just creating this whole little plan for myself. Fast forward to sometime within the past 365 days, something stupid happened at work. My better half, who's he's a battalion chief somewhere else, so he looks at me with a critical eye. He doesn't uh he doesn't give me a pass on anything. Something happened and he said, Hey, you really need to go deal with this. This was this was not okay. And I remember in that split second when he said that thinking, maybe it's my fault. Mm. And I thought, fuck. Right back to it. <laughs> Why are we back? So I texted a good friend of mine, Mike Wells. He does a lot of pure stuff, pure uh pure sports stuff across the country. And I said, Listen, not going to get into it tonight. Early 20s, domestic situation. Thought all that was gone, but here we are. And he said, all right, what therapist number do you want? And I said, nope. I said, I'm not ready to go to therapy right this second because I don't know what's behind those closed doors. I said, but I'm telling you now, if I start to regress, you are in charge of, of saying, hey, therapy is not an option. And when I say I'm ready, then you can help me pick a, pick a therapist. So he's phenomenal about every couple months saying, hey, where are you? And are you ready? And I think that's important. I think the other part of the equation we don't talk about is therapy's great. Go to therapy. But if you are not at a place in life where you can go to therapy, have a game plan. You don't have to go to therapy right then and there. But have that plan for this isn't okay. This is never going to go away. How am I going to deal with it the next time it pops up? And whether it be you just tell someone or whether it be you pull that pin and you say, all right, we're, we're going to therapy, you at least have that plan. And same thing with the bad days and with the calls. It's what's my plan? I go home. Um... I don't feel like I can tell my other half working out didn't work. What's my next step? That didn't work. What's my next step? I don't think we teach people going into this career how to have a broader plan other than suck it up or go talk to a therapist. No, we don't. We definitely don't. We don't talk about that. It is personal accountability. Mm -hmm. You have to, in order to survive and to do your job and to be your strongest and to be your best, because that's what you signed up to do. You have to take accountability for how you're going to handle the bad shit because we are going to see and be expected to handle the bad shit. We think we're invincible, but if you look at any elite team, SWAT team, SEAL team, whatever, those team leaders are in charge of monitoring their people and looking at them and saying, hey, who's not mentally ready? Who has a tooth infection? or who's going through a divorce, these things can get you pulled off a mission or a call out or any of those things. And we are, I think, the only 
elite type of career where it's you just saw the worst thing of your life. Hey, you need to go to therapist? Everybody okay? No. But there's no, hey, did did you get it taken care of, by the way? We're, we're four days later. Are you still okay? Are you still good? And we can't necessarily do that. So you better have a fucking game plan in place for policing yourself because that is part of our responsibilities. So that's it. That's the whole, it's a continuing story. 40 years are about to hit. So we'll see what happens in the 40s. I, I like how you say it. that's it. There's so much in there because we could have taken each story and we could have gone down a, a couple of paths from each story. And you run know, with it. Go down a path if you need to. Well, I it's interesting because I've had these dis, I've had discussions about I, th I think everything that you've talked about. You've talked about your experience as a female in the fire service, the rough how that is, and how there there's been change, but there's not complete change from that experience for women in the fire. So you talked about loss, loss of of loved ones. You've talked about. Uh, domestic situation, which I've obviously talked about on, on the show before. You've talked about it, all of it. everything you've talked about has been has been a theme somewhere along the, the line in this show. Well, I think it's important to and, and ADD kicked in and I didn't say this. The reason that I did want to share this is because my life is not necessarily abnormal in any way, shape or form. Now, granted, does it happen to everybody? No. But elements of my life, especially loss, Issues with your kids, all those things are common. Divorce, mm -hmm. all these things are common. And it's something that, especially as firefighters, I feel is more common in many ways and hits us harder and differently, especially loss. Because when we have a loss happen, we try to treat it like we're on the job. And you can't do that. You can't not mourn a life that was close to you. But I think the first instinct is to not to not to mourn that life because you just you don't want to open that door and go down that road of starting to have feelings. My story is common and it's something that commingles horribly with our job. I think that it, your point of, you know, my outside life, how it affects my job life. It's not my outside life versus my job life. It's my life. And that's what we like you say, we fail to see that. We fail to see that we're humans outside of this job. We're humans inside of this job. And, and we're that same human with these, all this, all these experiences flooding in from, from home, from maybe a, a second job, from the job, from everything. It's all flooding in and we do shut it down. We shove it and we shove it and we shove it and we shove it. And that's where I, you've got to a point where you, that's what you're doing. That's where I was six months ago, I was doing the same thing. And it's recognizing, wait a second, it's not the job that's really doing as much damage as, as everything else is on top of it is doing the damage. It's a complete picture. And we can't continue to, and departments are getting, we're getting better about creating better systems and classes, but you cannot pigeonhole it into suck it up or therapy. It's just... It's much more complex. Well, not only can you not do that, but if you are doing that, you're completely irresponsible and you are the problem. We, we won't touch that mentality, but anyway. I'll touch it. I don't, that, my department doesn't like me much anyway, so it doesn't just slide that one in there. Uh, the other thing, the one thing I really want to hit on, and, and I, I talked about this the other day with somebody, um, that w women in the fire service angle needs to be spoken about still, and it needs to be put on blast in a sense, because it's still happening. And that's why I said, wait a second, These, this thing hasn't completely changed. And it's happening in big departments. Females are still putting up with utter bullshit from people. So your union president, Mitch Nason, and I did a podcast, I think, 
probably about a year ago now, where we talked about this. We were guests on someone else's show. And I told a story and I said, by the way, this was within the past year. And the look on Mitch's face was priceless because this was a year ago. So that would have been 2020, 2019-ish. And it's, no, things do still happen. I will say what has gotten, some departments have gotten better, but I think what has also gotten better is guys in the firehouse. And that was actually the point I was trying to make on that entire podcast was, what's the repetitive thing in my story here today? You know, what, excuse me, what took me down the right road so many times was male coworkers. Family in the firehouse. Paying attention and saying, this isn't acceptable. This isn't okay. We're going to gather around you. And we're going to make sure that the right thing is done. And to this very day in in my career, I've watched that still happen. You know, something went sideways and it was actually with, with a male coworker and watching my firehouse just gather around him and say, no, we we won't accept how you're treating our coworker. Get the fuck out. If you can't treat him correctly, then you're not welcome here. So that's always what's going to make or break. Fire department, fire culture, fire service takes hundreds of years to change. What we can change at a much faster rate is what shouldn't need changing, what should already be happening. Everybody should be watching out for everybody. I agree with that. Not everybody is, obviously. I, and it's funny you mentioned Mitch because I've asked Mitch to, to come on a show with me and he's more than willing and we're going to set that up. But it's going to be a panel a panel discussion. I wanted to talk about changes and where we should go as a fire service, where we should go as, as a department. Not, not necessarily a department because I don't want to be department specific. So you and I can talk about that because I think you might be a good addition to that. But Mitch knows from your comment that things aren't changed, haven't changed completely. But he also knows from people in my department have told him, hey, we're still here in the department. And you know what? I pick up my phone and, oh, good, there's a dick pic. I didn't ask for this, but it's there. And and there's the request for, hey, you're going to send me nudes. You know, it's there. It's constant. It's every day for women in the fire service still. And people don't realize this. So I remember 2007 or 2008. I was having issues with someone and they were from another department, but with the very unasked for dick pic scenario. And I finally just one day was exasperated and I said something to, to our driver who's probably about 15 years older than me. And he looked at me and he said, either you figure out how to block that phone number or you tell that person to fuck off or I will go tell the captain. And he said, and in career to career, we're going to, we're going to deal with that. Um, so back then you couldn't block someone on your phone. So I had to call ET and mm. pay to have this number blocked. But he gave me the kind of safe option to do what I needed to do and realize that it was the right thing to do. And once again, watching out for each other. Now, should I have been getting that unasked for dick pic in the first not. place? Fuck no. That's the but, fucking issue. But for every negative I have run into, the amount of positive from my coworkers has been twofold. I will say that is I have run into some incredibly stupid shit. But the guys around me have always and under the, under the threat of having their career damaged. Some of the stories I could tell you out of that one firehouse are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And but under the threat of, hey, this could affect my home life, my career, my pay, they stepped up and they did the right thing anyway. And I'd be interested to hear 
if females in your county are saying the same thing of, yeah, you know what, I deal with some stuff that's pain in the ass every now and then. But if I look to the guy on my left or my right and I tell them, hey, this is going on, they're going to guide me or they're going to step up for me or they're going to do whatever it is. And I hope that's the case. I hope so, too. I, I know for a fact that in our department, the females are still dealing with a lot of unsolicited and unwanted innuendos and pictures and comments. And it's just it's ridiculous. And, and to, to me, it just blows me out of the water still. And, and it, it actually took me by surprise that it's happening as often as it is. And that's where policing our own comes into play, not just stepping up for each other, but all right. When you see the dude next to you doing something stupid, you tell him to knock the fuck off. Yeah. Hey, this isn't the time. This is the place. We're, we're professionals here. Why are you, would someone do that to your sister or your mother exactly. or your daughter? And I know we always say that as a cliche, but it is true. It's a good barometer. It is a good barometer. It's a damn good barometer. All right. So we, we're going to talk about a different show after we get off air here. And I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, but my last two questions, I'm going to ask you again. I want to know the everyday carry. And you can use the same everyday care if you need to. I don't care because we talked, you interviewed me on your show and, and I'll link to your show in, in the show notes. But what's your everyday carry? What's something you feel naked without if you don't have it? Actually, we just talked about it when I walked into your place. Headphones. I absolutely have to have headphones. Sometimes I can get insanely overstimulated when, and we all do, when we come off duty mm -hmm. and our brain is fried. I just worked a 48-hour shift. I I. Didn't know how to tie my shoe when I got off duty. And being able to create a silent or calm space is really nice when you're trying to get your brain restarted. But also, just, just when you're wandering around, if you can have music in and just make it a little bit more of a relaxing moment is also a nice little moment of therapy for me. So headphones, I like it because you, when you walked into the house, I had an ear, I had an ear pod in, and and you didn't even know I was, I had it in at the time. Yeah, I obviously do the same thing now. Um, all right, so let's go with a book. What's your book recommendation? So when you and I did my show together, I told you it was John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. Yes. Since we did that show, I went back and started to reread. Travels with Charlie, which I've been reading since I was like 13 years old. Yeah, you posted it on Instagram a uh, couple of weeks ago. Just reminded why that's my favorite book. It is just a fantastic book. So we'll stick with Travels with stick Charlie. With, and, it's, it's always going to be that answer, most perfect. likely. So I will link that into the show notes. And I have not read anything new since because I've been rereading that. So apologies. I don't, I don't No, you, I don't think you have to apologize. You read what you want to read and that's it's a, it's a personal choice, right? So, all right. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank um, you for we, doing that. Thank I you. Came for... in blind on this one, and and you took over, and I liked it. It was it was a, it was at times a heart wrenching story, but a very good story to hear. Is the blind thing a joke? Because I have an eye patch. No, on right I wasn't now. even going to mention the eye patch until I posted the picture, which will probably be later today, just so people can see it. Thank you for creating this this space where those of us who are old and about to leave can drop a couple nuggets of wisdom. Yeah, I I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, and we, we're going to talk again. Thank you. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other. <laughs>